as you can imagine, there's a, a lot I could share uh, from GAFCON, the GAFCON conference, and the travels in Rwanda. If you're visiting, you've probably figured out I was away for a couple weeks. Um, I encourage you all to read the Kigali statement from the GAFCON conference. GAFCON, by the way, means Global Anglican Futures Conference. It's the name for the conference um, that first began in 2008 and has been every five years. And that's what it was about, the Global Anglican Future. Uh, unfortunately, that name has stuck for our, our movement as well. The GAFCON movement, it's a terrible name. The better name is it's the conference for the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, of which we are a part, the Global Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. So please do read that statement. It was a monumentous statement. Um, as a result of the decisions in that meeting, the Anglican Church will never be the same. There was a decisive shift. Uh, so to be an Anglican is no longer bound, uh, bound up with or bound by being recognized by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So 85% of the Anglican communion broke fellowship with the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's significant. And according to 85% of Anglicans worldwide, the Anglican Communion is now explicitly determined by adherence to orthodox biblical doctrine and to our heritage of worship. So 20 years ago, the first GAFCON set out the Jerusalem Statement as a guidepost, as, a, as guidance for uh, being Anglican. It's a doctrinal statement. It sets out doctrinal boundaries. So today, the Anglican Communion has been reset um, for, for the entire history of the Anglican Church. It, Anglicans have looked to the Archbishop of Canterbury to recognize who are legitimate Anglicans. That's no more. When the statement was read, it was not with jubilation. <laughs> It, it was not, uh, there was no cheering. In fact, there was dead silence as the statement was read. Because the, the communion was calling the Church of England, the Episcopal Church in the United States, the Church of Canada, of Wales, of Scotland, to repentance. So those churches from which the gospel went out to the world, the world was, the, the global communion was now calling for them to repent. So there was a solemn seriousness about it all. There was weeping. There, there was a, a profound sense of loss. But there was also the comforting sense of standing in the will of God. That rightness, that, the conviction that the Lord was pleased. The Lord is desirous that we submit to him and that we accept whatever cost. And there is loss. What was also abundantly clear to me in Kigali is that the West is no longer driving the ship, the Western church. The passing of the baton has happened. It's, it is done. So today, I want to help us think about that. 
to be in step with the movements of God. These are moves of God. He is doing things in the world. And I want to look at the scripture today to help us understand, help us orient ourselves so that we're purposely part of what God is doing. We want to live on purpose and we want to live in submission to the Lord of all the earth. And we have a part to play in his global kingdom going forward. What does that look like? My companion through the last two weeks was a man named Cedric. He's been here. Many of you have met him or you've traveled there and you've met him. But we met eight years ago uh, as part of one of our church's short trips, a couple week trips there. Over an evening meal, he told our, our little Nampa group uh, a bit of his life. He'd been raised a Muslim in Western Rwanda. His father, the first sheik of Rwanda. His father was a Hutu. His mother was a Tutsi. Uh, and the genocide had torn his family apart along those lines, those ethnic lines. He'd ended up on the street. He turned to drugs. Then he turned to violent Islam to try to cope with his pain, try to give meaning to his life. And he had become an imam at a young age. That group of us, we sat spellbound as he told the story of his path, a path that suddenly stopped when he contracted a blood cancer that first left him paralyzed, and then he spoiled his own funeral by standing up at it. Uh, right, right before his burial, he'd been dead for 12 hours, and in his death, he was tortured by demons. And then Jesus came and claimed him. In whatever space that was, the Lord sent him back to his body with, with a commission to proclaim him, to give his life to proclaim Jesus is Lord, which he did beginning with the day of his burial. <laughs> that didn't happen. So there he was. Uh, he had come to Biumba for a conference, and he was preaching the redeeming power of Jesus, stronger than any power in the world. And we were amazed. As I heard that story, I felt something like I imagine Jonathan felt when David came in after killing Goliath, and the scripture says, Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. He loved him. It's his own soul. Something like that. God breathed the love for me, in me, for Cedric. So when I brought my family to Rwanda in 2016, the purpose of that trip, and along with recovering from... Um, uh, way too long of bivocation and, and bad health. I went to hear that story in great detail and to write it. So I'm gesturing to that story. It's on the table, by the way. I gesture to that story of David and Jonathan because it, it illustrates a truth that we need for thinking about the global church today and these moves that God is making. In particular, it shows what is required when God is building his kingdom, is that his servants must practice self-forgetfulness. We are not the center of him building his kingdom. We have to lay hold of that. In 1 Samuel 18, please turn with me. That's where we'll look for a bit here. 
David comes in to speak with Saul after killing Goliath. And it's then that Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. He gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword, his bow, and his belt. These are significant moves. Back in chapter 13, I hope you've read the book of Samuel. It's fascinating, amazing moves. Back in chapter 13, when Israel started fighting with the Philistines, we are told that there were only two swords in all of Israel, the swords of Saul and Jonathan, two swords. The rest of the army, they were using jawbones of donkeys. They were using farming equipment. They were using clubs, two swords. D David had just killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. He'd been offered, Saul had offered him his sword because that's all there is. Jonathan then takes these incredibly costly emblems of his authority, of his role, of honor, and he showers David with honor. In the months that follow, God gives David more and more success. You know, wherever he went, he was successful. Jonathan, son of the king, knows that the prophet Samuel declared Saul's rejection by God. You had been the Lord's anointed, but the kingdom had been torn from Saul and given to another. So Jonathan perceives that David is the Lord's anointed. He understands it. He looks, he sees, he understands. It's David, not him. David, not Jonathan, will rule after Saul. Incredibly, Jonathan works to promote David. This is a shocker. He's, according to succession, Jonathan should be king. He promotes David. He pleads with his father on David's behalf. He protects David. He saves his life multiple times. So although Jonathan is the successor to Saul, he performs this very unlikely role for the eldest son of the king, promoting someone else's king. In making a covenant with David, giving him regal gifts, he becomes a herald, a proclaimer of the new kingdom. Jonathan here is a, is a type. So we know how David is a type for Christ. He's a forerunner, a, an emblem of the anointed king. Jonathan is a type for the herald of the Christ. His namesake, John the Baptist. I am not the Christ, John said, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. He must become greater. I must become less. The kingdom of the Christ is costly for John the Baptist. Costs him his head, in fact. It's costly for Jonathan. In a fit of rage, 
You remember this, this terrible moment. Saul the king publicly heaps shame on his son, Jonathan. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. The father heaps shame on his son in front of everyone. He throws a spear at him to try to kill him. But Jonathan heeds the movements of God. He joins with God. David must become greater. He must become less. Because Jonathan knows that and because he accepts it, he encourages his friend. He seeks his honor, promotes his recognition, guards and protects him. Think about this. David is the youngest of eight. He has spent more time with sheep than with people. That's, he's out there all the time. David has no idea how to be at the center of authority. He has no skills in this area. His own brothers scorn him. His own brothers will not give him a place among them. They don't want him to be where the battle is. So in making covenant with him, Jonathan elevates him from shepherd of sheep. He elevates him to his equal. He becomes a surety, a guarantee for his place there around Saul. And in doing all this, Jonathan is helping to equip David. Jonathan is a mentor to David. He's showing him how to be at the center of authority. Come stand by me, son of the king. I'll show you how to be the heir. I'll show you how to be the heir. Because I'm not going to be the heir. John the Baptist and Jonathan both show us when the kingdom of God is spreading in the world and God is pushing back the darkness and he's doing new things. He's growing his kingdom and he's claiming ground. One of the essential postures for the people of God, those who are going to be his true servants, is self-forgetfulness. The intentional setting aside of pride, of your privileges, of your honor, of what you think you're due, of your rights. Setting those things aside. Yes. The truth of this passage, it has relevance for us as we're trying to follow the movements of God in the world today. We want to be in step with the Spirit. So if we're to join in the kingdom work of God through the global church, it's going to require us, just as it requires, it's required of every servant of God to set aside our pride, our sense of privilege, our honor, in order to give honor to our brothers and sisters. So I want to draw out this principle as we consider and think about our relationship with the global church, but specifically the global south, more specifically with those churches God has put us into close fellowship with.
About 30 years ago, the reality that the composition of the global church was changing began to really dawn on scholars of the church who, who watch and study movements of the church. They recognize there's a fundamental shift beginning to dawn on the church. What had begun as a trend had, in fact, come to be. The demographic makeup of the church had changed. It had, the center of it had shifted to the global south. Global south means non-Western countries. Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America. Each one of those has more Christians than in North America. Africa, Asia, Latin America. Each one has more Christians than North America. Way more than Europe. So to state this another way, there are now more than twice as many Christians in the global south as in Europe and North America. That's a change from how we've thought about the church historically. So we have to continue to live in accordance with this reality. The formation of the ACNA came about through re recognition from the global south. Our own mission movement, the Anglican Mission in America, that then became Hair USA, came about by recognizing that leadership had passed there and that we are now the site of mission. But things have stabilized for us. That sense of of needing help, that sense of, of calling out for rescue, that, that's largely past. We have felt stabilized. And so we got on with the business of churching. You know, you know about that, churching. And it's easy to forget our need for the global church. But we do that at our peril. We forget our need at our peril. So if the center of the global church has shifted, then the center of the battle has passed to leadership of other generals. And we don't like that. We like to be in charge. In the West, especially America, that's what we do. We lead stuff. We're, we're the bosses. We set the tone. God has shifted the center. And so the nature of our role in the global church ought to shift accordingly. So just as Jonathan was aware of the movements of God, Jonathan recognized, he perceived David is the anointed king. We've also made such a recognition. And the tokens of that recognition, the signs of it for us, like that sword, like that tunic of Jonathan, came about in the rescue of the North American church by Rwanda, the submission of our clergy to those leaders, the consecration of bishops in the house of Rwanda, this, our submission. But in this ongoing work of the North American church that we're part of, we need to embrace this ongoing reality which is a part of our call, it's a part of our call as a diocese, 
It's also a part of our call as a local congregation. Living out that global connection. It is a strange thing, right? If you think about this, ladies, I know at the, at the tea, Brooke shared the history of our congregation. It is surely a strange thing that we in Nampa, Idaho, have a unique calling, charism, role uh, of celebrating global connection and being a kind of bulwark or a stronghold, outpost of the Lord's global church. It really is kind of strange and surprising. But it's what God has done. That This is so much a part of who we are. Is so surprising that Timothy, a couple weeks ago, began a mission congregation to Kinyarwanda and Kirundi speakers in the Treasure Valley. A mission of this church that is African. This is something we, you know, 10 years ago, I, I, I dreamed of that this would be part of who we are. Takes a, it took a while to show itself. but To live this calling, to, be, to live our calling as part of the global church and our altered place within it, humility is going to be an essential, an essential for us. Humility is the necessary disposition, the necessary inner posture that prepares a soul to trust God. We have to have humility to trust the Lord, to trust him, to trust others. The opposite disposition is pride. And pride chokes faith. Because wherever there's self-assertion, wherever there's self-interest, self-seeking, self-exaltation, wherever that's creeping in, faith, is faith gets hindered, it gets choked, because the attention is on the self. The turn is inward. Trust is inward. I trust only me. But humility accepts our limitations. Accepts if you are humble, you are accepting your personal limitations. It's accepting the need for help. And accepting those limitations that we must follow the moves of the Lord Jesus is an necessary posture to hear his voice. If he's going to shepherd us, we have to be humble enough to listen to him. So we have to refuse our tendency to try to dictate everything and hold on to control, like Saul. Note what Saul did when it was evident that the Lord had anointed a new king and it wasn't in his house. He tried to kill him. He tried to kill him. He tried to kill him. He refused the movements of the Lord. So what, what, what might it mean for us to work humbly in accord with God's movement, to stand strong in the place that he has given us to stand, like Jonathan did? Well, first, we can lend our weapons in order to strengthen what's weak, in the global south, like Jonathan giving his sword, giving his social know-how, sharing how to lead, specifically uh, the Rwandan church 
and the Church of the Global South generally needs better Bible training, better understanding of how of the covenants of God, how the Bible works specifically for the catechists and clergy. And they need finances. One of the great gifts God has given to the West is wealth. It's been a double-edged sword for us. But finances for the church are needed to help bring about the transformation of communities where God's church is growing. So as more and more disciples come in, as a church full of children grows up, there's a need for resources. It's their humility to admit the need. It's our humility to offer what weapons we have. Probably not the ones we might wish. Second, and maybe more importantly for us, and certainly humble, is that we have to receive. We have to receive. And this receiving requires being in relationship and it requires acknowledging need. The fact is, we are laboring on hard ground. You know this. The ground in North America is hard. Not long ago, a Nigerian bishop, he was talking about Africa and how it's in a, this period of incredible fertility. There's fertility in faith. There's spiritual vitality. Uh, he was saying the ground of Africa, and this could be said of Asia as well, is so fertile it receives seeds of all kinds. You know, whatever seeds of truth are spread, Everything is abundantly watered. It, it, it sprouts. Its churches spring up overnight. The Church of India is bursting. It's fertile. It also means it receives all sorts of, all sorts of things. Cults spring up overnight. False teaching springs up. The prosperity gospel is nurtured and grows easily there. Part of our sharing, part of our gift, is offering warning from our failures, warning from what we've done. It's fertile there. In North America, we're breaking up fallow ground. We have not had a period of vitality in a long time. So what are we doing? What do we do in this church? We break up the fallow ground. Week by week, our attention to the scriptures through the week as we study the Bible together, what we're doing is breaking up hard ground. It's hard. It's rocky. It's parched. Our friends, our neighbors, our family, they don't eagerly receive truth, do they? It's not a lot of people saying, just tell me truth. Show me what you have. It's hard ground. But we pour our labor out and we scatter the seed. And most often we see it choked. We see it withered. We see it stolen. I do sometimes wonder. Seed goes out. What happens in you, in the ground that you are? What happens to it?
feels a little like Psalm 126. We are so desperately hungry ourselves that we have to eat the seed grain. The grain that was supposed to be preserved for sowing. So we go out, we go out weeping, carrying our seed, because we have to plant. We have to just keep planting. It won't be like this forever. The global south won't be fertile like this forever. We will not be hard ground like this forever. Because the Lord moves. The center of the battle moves. But right now, we need faith to continue. I mean that as a body of believers. I mean that for you individually. You need faith to continue. Brothers and sisters, you, you put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. You have put your hand to serve the kingdom of God. You have been commissioned by the Lord Jesus, our king, our general, to serve. Don't look back. Our hands ache. Our hearts fail. It's crushing as we, we see that seed get choked. It's heartbreaking when we invest and invest and invest in people and we watch them walk away. It is hard. We need to sharpen our plowshare, sharpen our plowshares to cut into the hard ground, to sharpen the tools that we have. That means discipleship means bringing yourself to the Lord, bringing yourself to his word, because it's his word that does the work of sharpening. It's his word that does the work of cutting away what doesn't belong, of cleansing. The hard ground may be in your own heart. It may be the hard ground of Relationship that needs healing. And you feel hard towards it. You feel hardened to the word of God that says forgive. That's what God's word says. Forgive. That's one of the primary lessons that every time we have fellowship with the global south, what we hear is forgiveness is essential. To be the fertile people of God Forgiveness is essential. Otherwise, we become hard. How is it that we, came an un, we became an unforgiving people? It's probably, that's a, it's another sermon. And yet, when we look at these brothers and sisters, and Rwanda confronts us, brothers and sisters who saw the death of family members. Our own brother here saw the death of family members. And yet, forgives. Every one of those people I mentioned that send greetings, they've watched family members be murdered. Why are they free? Why are they free? They shouldn't be free, right? 
They should, they should seek their rights. They should get what's right. They should seek justice and vengeance. But they forgive. They forgive and they're free because of it. I want to suggest that our relationship with Rwanda and the global church is vital for our faith to be sharpened. It's a gift from God. The primary gifts of God are not things. They're not stuff. They're not the stuff that we want. The primary gifts of God are people that bring grace to us. Because when you scrape... When you scrape at crusty ground long enough, and you see fruitlessness long enough, you can forget that seed is meant to grow. You can forget that reading the Bible is meant to produce. You can forget that sharing, sharing the truth is meant to produce life. We can forget that. I forget it all the time. Sometimes I don't even believe it. Sharing the gospel is actually supposed to produce fruit. So finally, in this, this fellowship with the global church, we can receive the reminder and be encouraged. It really is supposed to be fruitful. And we can see, look, that's what it's supposed to look like. The kingdom really is going forth. If all we looked at was Europe and North America, we would despair. We would say, the church is dying. Lots of people say that. The church is dying. The church is dying. Baloney. That there has never been a more fruitful period in the church than right now. That's awesome. Peter says, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Our global family is suffering now. When God grows his church, his church suffers because his church is like him or his body. And our global family suffering, they are also an example of what faith ought to look like. So bringing that faith our way, Timothy has taught me more in the last year, I don't mean to embarrass you, but more in the last year about enduring faithfulness in the face of challenge. Amen? Than I had learned in my whole life. What does it look like to keep praying when nothing is working. That's how. We have to recognize our new place in this battle. It's a crucial place. It's crucial. It's not the center. It's crucial. It's the flank. Some of you like military history. In a large battle, the flanks are key. You cannot win the battle without keeping the flanks. The Union Army at the Battle of Gettysburg won the Battle of Gettysburg because of one little hill called Little Round Top. The Southern Army sent an invasion around to, to come around the back and cut through while the, the, ma the pickets charged, the major assault was waged. Little Round Top held. Because the flank held, the battle was won. Holding the flank allows the main body of troops to focus on their assault. God is driving back the darkness in the global south. But we must hold the line. Father, we are not up to the task. We are 
not able on our own to do the thing we're to do. We need you. We need you. Lord, I pray especially that you would soften our hard hearts. Our hearts that are unforgiving. Hearts that have grown desperate because we haven't seen fruit that we desire. Lord, thank you for sending us the message of persevering prayer, perseverance in the face of challenge. Enable us to receive it, to live it, to persevere. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who pray steadily, with commitment, over time. And Lord, teach us again. Teach us again to hear your voice so that we can respond when you direct so that we can respond when you convict us of sin. Give us your spirit to be willing to obey you. In Jesus' name.